thank you for being here. Let me share with you a little bit. I appreciate Jody letting me um, uh, letting me take a little pulpit time and minister here. I want to talk to you today about. Uh, I, honestly, I want to tell you a story today. I want to tell you. I want to tell you kind of my story, one of the darkest periods in my life that I want to talk about today. But first of all, let me, I'm going to teach you a little bit of Cajun, a little bit of Cajun language. We Cajuns have a we have a saying that is um, that's important to our culture, and uh, you've probably heard it before. Uh, we probably have some uh, folks who have a little Cajun background. There. How many of you heard heard the term "lash pala patat"? Yeah, we have a few Cajuns in the house. I see a few hands raised. Lash palapatat. That's an important saying in the Cajun culture. Because what it means is in, uh, in a difficult time in your life when, um, when you're having to really hold on, when you're having to grip tight because things are, uh, things are difficult, and when you would say to somebody maybe something like hang in there or, you know, don't give up, you, uh, you would say to them in the Cajun language, lash palapatat, very technical saying, it means don't let go of the potato. And, uh, and uh, that sounds like an odd little saying, but what it's saying is no matter how hot that potato is, it's important that you hold on. I know times are difficult. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's hard for you. I know you're really having to stretch yourself, but don't let go is the term that we that uh, that is that's embodied in that little saying. Let me give you a, let me give you something in, in English. The title of my message today is Never Let Go. It comes from the 32nd chapter of Genesis verses 26 through 24 through 26 in the word of God, which says then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, when he saw that he did that he did not prevail against him, he touched the he touched the socket of uh, of his hip, and the socket of uh, Jacob's hip came out of joint, and he wrestled with him, and he and he said, "Let me go, for the day is breaking." But he said, Jacob said, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." Title of my message is never let go. Lord, speak to us today in, in your word, Lord God. Speak to us inspirationally, Lord. Speak to us deeply, Lord God, and transform our lives into those who would not let go when things get difficult, when those nights are dark and when things are difficult and when life is hard, Lord God, that we would not give up and not let go in Jesus' name. All right, here's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to, I want to, I want to tell you the story of one of the darkest times in my life. I don't think I've ever talked about it like this in length before. Some of you walked through it with us. It was about 14, 14 years ago. And in that time, in that time in my, in, in, in my life, it seemed like everything was great. But on, uh, on, the, on the 21st day of January in 2007, about three o'clock in the morning, it was a Saturday night, it was, a, it was a Sunday morning and I was to preach that morning. I woke up with excruciating pain right in the flank area here. Uh, pain like I'd never had before, pain like I didn't know existed. I had heard about kidney stones and how difficult they were, so I assumed maybe it was a kidney stone. But I, uh, I got up, woke Janie up, and by the time she got to the car, I was already dressed and out there waiting for her to get me to the hospital quick. I went to the hospital, they morphined me up to get rid of the pain, uh, went right into an MRI looking for, uh, looking for a kidney stone. They came back later, said we didn't find a kidney stone, but we found a tumor. We found something suspicious that we had to check up on. Well, they went straight into um, uh, biopsy mode, took a biopsy, found a sarcoma tumor 
uh, six centimeters in, uh, on the inside of my right pelvis. Uh, that was, um, I, I didn't understand how bad the word sarcoma was. And so over the next four days in the hospital, we got the, 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 uh, the, the diagnosis, the verdict as it were. And uh, people came in and out praying with us. Uh, but by the time, and we appreciated that, but by the time that four days was over, I knew something really bad was wrong because doctors were coming in, pulling up chairs and sitting 15, 20 minutes with us and doctors don't do that. They moved us to the end of the hall to the suite so Jane could be there with me. I mean, we got this, this five-star treatment that I knew was not a good indication. I finally found out that I had a tumor that was uh, of a cancer that was very, very rare. My our family doctor had never seen one, and uh, and there were only two places in the country that they would recommend that I go to get it dealt with. One was in Rochester, New York. The other was in Houston, MD Anderson. Of course, we elected Houston, and um, so uh, so we went to Houston. Went through our uh, through our our diagnosis process, and they said your pathology uh, lab back in uh, Sulphur got it exactly right. Have a sarcoma tumor, and it's going to require very radical treatment. And uh, so I was to see a sarcoma specialist who saw nothing but that type of cancer from all over the world. And uh, and and over a period of time, we began to learn that. Um, this was extremely dangerous. That there was that it was a yeah, that I was in. Uh, I was very very sick, and uh, so um, I uh, I needed a strategy because I was inclined to fight, and so I um, uh, I developed a strategy. The Lord and I developed our little strategy. Here's what we're going to do, and so we called the family together. Um, we went to MD Anderson. They did the test and they set up a date that we should come back to begin uh, chemotherapy. And that uh, chemotherapy, began, chemotherapy began on Ash Wednesday in 2007, and which was February 21st. And uh, uh, I thought, Lord, there's got to be something significant about the fact that all these people just came from church and got ashes on their head who are treating me, you know. <laughs> I don't know, I was looking for signs, right? But my strategy was this. We called the family together and um, and uh, around our table and I began the preparation I began my preparation to live or die and uh, so we called the family in we gave them the diagnosis told them the prognosis told them what the uh, chances looked like and uh, and the chances were uh, were against us the odds were against me and so I started out the conversation saying if I don't survive Here's what I want you to do for your mother. Here's what you want to do with my place. Here's how you dispose of my livestock. And here's what I want you to do for the church. And so we laid out a plan for how, what the family should do, what my family should do in, my, in, the, in the event of my death. It was not a, a happy meeting, but it was a necessary meeting. If I die, here's what the plans are. And then I, then I said this, I said, now, the other side of that is I don't plan to die. I plan to live. And I made him a promise. I said, I'm going to fight like I've never fought before. I'm going to fight spiritually with the word of God in my faith. I'm going to fight medically with the best medical help that I can get. I'm going to fight mentally and, I'm, and uh, keep a positive attitude. I'm going to fight nutritionally. I'm going to fight every way that I know how to fight. 
in order to overcome this thing. And I'm going to trust God that I'm not going to die, but I'm going to live. And so we had plans for, had uh, secondary plans for death, but a plan to fight in order to live. And I made the family this promise. I said, I promise you this. I said, I've tried to, I've told my, especially my kids. I said, I have lived, I've tried to live a life that you would be proud of. And if I die, I'm going to die in a way that you'll be proud of. I'm going to die like a man of God. I'm going to, I'm going to die with a positive attitude. I'm going to die and I'm going to go be with Jesus. And so live or die, I want to make you, I want to be an example of godliness in my, in my family. And then we took communion together. I, Janie and I had set up communion. We took, a uh, family took communion together. Communion, guys, uh, uh, please understand communion. Never stop learning about communion, by the way. I continue learning. I, have, I take communion almost every day, and I continue to learn more and more about the power of it. But here's what communion is to me. And, and I say this to God when I take communion by myself. I take a, 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 little, a little cracker. I use, a, I use a, little, a little wheat thins cracker. And I take that, that, bre- that, that bread and I usually say something like this to God. I say, God, this cracker is whole. Jesus, it represents your wholeness. Because Jesus took a whole matzah, a whole piece of bread, all of it complete, perfect, nothing missing, nothing broken. And then the Bible says he took it and broke it. This whole bread represented what Jesus deserved. Wholeness, soundness of body. And he said, this is my body. Bread is specifically representative of your physical body. And so he took that that bread and he said, this is me, my body. Then he broke it. I'm I'm whole. I deserve wholeness. He did not say this, but it's implied. I deserve wholeness because I've never done anything to make me deserve brokenness. This is me. Now I am giving up my brokenness. One of the words that's used for Jesus' brokenness says that God crushed him. So he was, the bread was not just broken in half. Jesus' body was crushed. He broke the bread and he said, this brokenness is for you. Because you deserve brokenness, I deserve wholeness. I am giving you the gift of brokenness, my brokenness. I'm giving my brokenness so that you won't be broken and the, and the wholeness that I deserve, I'm giving as a gift to you. And so communion is Jesus saying, I give you my wholeness, I take your brokenness. And so he gave us wholeness and soundness and this is why we took communion together in order to emphasize that covenant of healing. And then he took the cup and he said, this is why you can have wholeness because of the blood that paid for your sin. So you no longer deserve brokenness. You deserve my wholeness. He took our brokenness, gave us his wholeness. We don't deserve brokenness of body. We don't deserve sickness. We don't deserve disease. We deserve wholeness because Jesus gave us his wholeness and paid for it with his blood. So next time you take communion, take your, your have you heard people toast one another and say to your health? See, that's, that's the covenant. That, that's a throwback to the covenant whereby Jesus took communion with us and said, this bread is to your health. This, bu- this blood paid for your health.
So we took communion together. I'm convinced right now that that event, when we took communion, that the tide was turned in the spiritual and it was determined that I was not going to die but live. I believe that happened in that communion service. I believe from that day forward, whatever, I still had to, had to walk through the wrestling match. But it was determined that I was going to survive this. I don't like to say survive. I don't believe I survived. I believe I defeated sickness. We don't survive cancer. We defeat it, right? And so, and so, uh, and so we, so with that, with the family prepared for, for death or life and with the battle on, I also made this commitment. I said, I can't control anything that's happening to me right now. Any of those who have, you know what I felt like? Any of those who have, of you who have worked cows, you know, you get cows into the chute and their choices are over. They just go where you make, or you tell them to go. They do what you tell them to do. You do to them what you want to do to them. They have no choice about it. That's what I felt like. I'm just in the chute here and I'm going where I'm told to go and they're doing to me what they want to do to me. We went into treatment. And so 18 weeks of chemotherapy and uh, six, to, six to eight hours a day of infusion in the hospital for a week at a time, then lay off for two weeks. During that week, I'm carrying a backpack with infusion going in 24-7. And, uh, and uh, I want to tell you, uh, chemotherapy does things to you that you don't necessarily want done to you. And, but, um, and every time we had infusion, I prayed, Lord, if I drink any deadly thing or if any deadly thing is infused into me, it will not hurt me. It will not hurt me. It'll hurt the cancer, but it won't hurt me. This is, you know, you got to fight. Janie was beside my side. God bless her. I could never repay her for that. Six to eight hours a day, she's sitting there with me. Would absolutely not leave my side while the infusion was going on because she saw other people who were alone and going through this by themselves. And she said, you're not going to be one of those. And she sat there for 18 weeks. She sat there six to eight hours a day in a, in a stark little room while I laid there and was infused. Walk in and she'd have to wheelchair me out because of what this was doing to my body. But that went 18 weeks. And, and uh, then after 18 weeks, then a, a month layoff, and then they did the surgery to remove the cancer. Now, the message, the word I'm getting during all this time is, uh, they're, after the, they, they would do, occasionally they would do, go in, do MRIs, have a look at the tumor. First time they said, well, it shrunk 20%, then it quit shrinking. And so every time they did a test, they'd come back, no shrinkage. That was bad news. I mean, the tumor's not going away. It's still there. And... So we were praying that it would disappear. It didn't disappear. So every time they'd come back, the news. So it seemed like the news was bad and then getting worse and getting worse, getting worse, getting worse instead of better. 18 weeks of this, a month layoff. Then they did the surgery. An 18-hour surgery, a surgery they call a hemipelvectomy. Um, they say it's, 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 it's pretty much the biggest operation, biggest surgery that can be performed because it totally restructured the bottom half of my body, took my hip completely out. And, um, and then, and they talked about amputation, amputation of the leg. They talked about wheelchair for life. They gave a lot of bad news that we, that we would, and we would refute it. Don't ever get bad news without withstanding it. Take a stand against it. Speak against it. 
We refuted it every way. Um, then uh, they said, well, maybe the best news is we could get you up on a walker if we can save the leg, get you up on a walker. And I said, I'm not going to live in a walker the rest of my life. I'm going to refute everything that, that... So the uh, surgery came. James sat there for 18 hours. Uh, surgery started uh, early, until like 6 in the morning, went till 2 o'clock the next morning. Um, high mortality rate in the, in the surgery. I survived the surgery, thank God. Uh, it required several subsequent surgeries. Jane said she stopped at about 30, counting about 30 surgical procedures. We weren't telling you all this because I didn't want to be telling bad news. And I was, I was on the, in the pulpit every time I was here. God bless you. You had to put up with me sometime in wheelchairs, hobbling around up here, lost 40 pounds and all. Anyway, it was a, it was a, it, you know, it was a, it was a, it was that night of wrestling that was going on. And but a determination in us that I'm going to be positive. We stayed positive. Jane and I both stayed positive the entire time. Our room was a sanctuary. Your nurses would come in our room. One nurse came in our room and said, I'm always, I always want to be in here because I feel peace in this, in this room. We prayed for everybody. Anything, anybody stands still long enough, we prayed for them. One time in nursing, in a, in a, in a waiting room at MD Anderson, crowded waiting room, we saw this woman come in. Poor thing, she looked like she felt so bad. I went over to her and I said, I said, ma'am, can we help you? Can we pray for you? She said, yes. She jumped at it. We asked who she was and asked her to turn out she was a, she was from Iraq. She had come over to the U.S., immigrated to the U.S. She was a doctor, wanted to practice in the U.S., a young woman. And uh, just when she got her credentials ready to practice, she found out she had cancer and now she's dying of cancer. And, uh, and she's a Muslim woman. And, uh, and so I'm saying, can we pray for you? And she jumped at the opportunity. We, we, we started praying for her and people started gathering around. I felt hands on my back. People were coming up behind us. And we, and we had a prayer meeting in that waiting room and prayed for this woman. Her friend who was with her was a Christian who had been ministering to her and witnessing to her. And she was thrilled that we had opportunity. But that kind of thing went on all the time. Prayed for a Presbyterian pastor one time. Prayed for people all over. And then we'd see these people who would occasionally come and go to the hospital and we'd run into them over and over again. They became friends. We were, so we, we definitely were in, but one time I was, they were changing bandages after my surgery. I was bandaged from head to toe and, uh, and in a very compromised position while they were, uh, uh, clothing wise while they were, while they were, and then, and I felt God's anointing come on me. And uh, there was this nurse standing there and, God, and I looked at her and God gave me a prophetic word for her. And I'm laying there prophet. And so I start prophesying to, the, to this woman in, a, in, a, in a, a, a very embarrassing position, clothing wise, you know, you know, prophesying. Maybe, maybe uh, who was it, Ezekiel that anyway, <laughs> prayed with a little different clothing arrangement, but it was a, but we stayed absolutely positive. After the surgery, I was a month in uh, in the in the uh, in the rehab ward there, and kept that entirely positive. When they said, "Can you walk around this uh, around this uh, nurses station with a walker?" I said, "No, I can do it twice." We doubled everything they asked us to do because we wanted our life back. And because we were wrestling, we, were, we knew we were wrestling. We knew that was, there comes times, there come times in your life, guys, when the only thing that will work is for you to say, I'm going to hold on and I will not release this. No matter what the news is, I will not take no for an answer. 
There's times you've got to lay hold of God and, they, and, you, and you, you don't have all the right answers. You don't have all the right confessions. You, don't even, you maybe don't have all the right thoughts, but you just hang on with the determination that I will not let go. That's what I want you to get out of this message today. There are times in life when nothing will work except to, I refuse to let go. I know somewhere in this mess of, a, of an experience, God is in here somewhere. And I'm going to lay hold on whatever I can find that has any semblance of the move of God. And I will not, I absolutely will not let go of this. Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you don't have that attitude, I don't care who you are. If you don't have that attitude, you're not going to survive. You're not going to survive this planet. And you're not going to exemplify the kingdom of God unless you take that kind of attitude that I am for God, he is for me, that is 100% both ways, and there is no other answer except I'm holding on to God. There's no compromise, there's no let go, there's no give up, there's no maybe so, maybe not, there's no, you know, Jesus said, in Revelation, Jesus said, this in Revelation chapter 3 he said I have found you to be lukewarm and I don't like that he said I want you to be cold or hot but not lukewarm that's Jesus saying don't ever just hang out in the middle and hope things will turn out you got to make a choice you got to make a decision and you got to take a stand and I tell you brother Willie if you don't take that stand you don't survive this stuff is that right and and there and the and and the the ability or the or the determination to wrestle through to the end and absolutely not give up no matter what the news is that comes in is imperative because I'll tell you in our experience here's what happened when they did the surgery and the and and now and they they took the tumor into into uh, to pathology. Uh, after a while, my doctor came in with a smile on his face, and and I'm saying, "What? I've had enough bad news. <laughs> I hope it's turned good." Well, we had hit the peak, and the news turned good, or this way, the news turned good. He said, "The tumor." is 100% necrotic, that means dead. There's not a living cell in that tumor. The, he said, that's why it was not shrinking, the chemo killed it. And he said, the good news is, if, it's, if it metastasized any place else in your body, it's dead too. So your cancer is dead. That was the good news. Well, my message in that is, there are times that your battle is not going to be pretty. It's not all going to be coordinated. It's not going to be over like you want it to be over, but that doesn't matter. The wrestling match goes on and on and on until you win. And if you don't make that determination, guys, if you don't make that determination, you're going to find yourself on the losing end of things in your walk with God. Now I want to tell you quickly, I want to tell you three things, three things that stop people from receiving their healing. This is a healing message this morning. I know I told you a lot of bad news, but this is a healing message this morning because after, after because a cancer that should have taken me out, I'm 14 and a half years later and I'm still here, should have taken my leg and I'm walking. It did take my hip. I have no hip and, and I'm walking. Uh, they sent me to therapy over here. The therapists were one of the, the uh, uh, David calls would call another therapist in here. Other therapists, are you reading what I'm reading? Larry Lafleur has no hip and he's walking. Well, I am walking and I have no hip. 
And, but I'm telling you that God has undertaken for me and he will undertake for you. And I'm telling you this this morning because what God did for me, he will do for you and he'll do it today. He'll do it right now. Three things you've got to get straight. Number one, people say God no longer heals today. I want, I want to tell you God heals today. If, uh, you know, uh, one of the nurses in the, in the, in the, uh, one of my doctor's nurses, a nurse that he said himself, he said, this woman had, was treating sarcomas before I was born. This woman had, was an expert. At, at, she, t- she told me one day before we left the hospital, she said, you know, you're Dr. Ludwig's first patient to go through treatment and come out, come out cancer free. First one. So. So here's what I want to tell you. Does God heal today? Jesus or God never healed because of a timeline. If there are those who say, well, the, 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 the period, the dispensation of healing is, Jesus did not heal because there was a timeline or a dispensation or a time segment in God's plan. Jesus healed because there were sick people. God's heart is so loving and so compassionate and so merciful that he is compelled by his own love to heal. And so until he quits loving, healing is not over. He named himself Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord who heals you. Until he changes his name, until the God who changes not changes his name, he cannot stop healing or he'll betray himself. He'll betray his own nature. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God heals because there are sick people. And as long as there are sick people, God will not be able to, God will not be able to stop himself from healing because of his loving nature. God is so loving that he cannot have the power to heal and withhold it. He can't. Just like a loving father cannot stand there with a sandwich in his hand while his son starves to death, his child starves to death. God cannot it's impossible for God to withhold healing. Then why are some people not healed? It's not about him giving. It's about us receiving. He's willing to give, but are we capable of receiving? And that means we have to work on, our, on ourselves. Second concern. There are people who say God heals, but he doesn't heal everybody. And he may choose not to heal me. Is that true scripturally? I answer that with with Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all, would you say all with me? Healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That scripture says this. It says, sickness is bad, healing is good. Healing, I mean, yeah, healing is good. Sickness is never good. I've heard people say, maybe God thinks, maybe God looks at us and says, sickness would be good for you. According to to Acts Acts, uh, 10.38, that sickness is uh, is bad. It's the oppression of the devil and healing is good. Sickness can never be defined as an act of God because the Bible teaches that healing, that sickness is oppressed of the devil and healing is good. Let's get a little doctrine straight. The devil makes people sick. God heals people. I had, I've had people try to tell me, well, sometimes the devil heals. You got to be careful. I don't find that anywhere in scripture. I find the devil making people sick. Man, if you get that backward, 
You're in, if you think in the devil makes you, makes you, it heals you and God makes you sick, and that is taught in some realms, God will make you sick for your own good, and you got to be careful because sometimes the devil heals to, to foul you up. The Bible doesn't teach that. He healed all who were oppressed of the devil, and Jesus was the manifestation of the will of God. God's will is to heal all. You got that straight? He still heals, he'll always heal, and he heals everybody who will who will qualify themselves for receiving. Okay, but there's the rub. There's the problem. Am I worthy of healing? I want to tell you a little story. Let me, let me tell you a little biblical story and draw you a word picture. Am I worthy to receive healing from God? After all, I know me, and I know I'm not a perfect guy, and I know I do some things wrong, so maybe I am just so bad that God says, I'm sorry, I just can't heal you. Because you're a bad person. Let me, let, me, let me help you with that. In temple worship, there are seven pieces of furniture in the temple. And in temple worship, each one of those pieces of furniture teaches another lesson. And one of the pieces of furnishing, the second that's encountered, the first is the altar of sacrifice. The second is the, what's called the brazen laver. The brazen laver or laver, or laver is, a, is a, it's a wash basin. And it's 15 feet across in the temple. It's 15 feet across, 47 feet around, stands seven and a half feet high. And there's a pedestal that you have to ascend to get to it. And it's specifically for the priests to wash before they go into the holy place. And so they are over here sacrificing uh, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of, of animals, of sacrificial animals. For the dedication of Solomon's temple, they sacrificed 140 plus thousand animals. There are gutters cut in the in the in the rock uh, the rock floors of that temple area for the blood to be guttered into the into a nearby um, into a nearby creek. So much blood, and that blood is being sacrificed to God on our behalf. That sacrifice is in our place. We deserve for that to be our blood. But God was, was having animals sacrifice eventually Jesus. So now these priests are covered with blood. And they're about to go into the presence of God. So they go to the brazen laver. And they wash their hands and their feet in that, in that laver. There's about 12,000 gallons of water. It's a big, big deal. And it's, but it's a, it's, a, it's a dished out basin with water in it. Now... The purpose for that is cleansing and reflection, self-judgment, self-judging self, uh, 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 yourself or self-examination. That's what the labor is about. Now, here's, here's what makes it, uh, here's what forms that picture. The, bra the brass that made this labor was taken, was a collection of the women, of the, the looking glasses of the Hebrew women. These looking glasses were made out of highly polished fine brass. They didn't have glass then. So they had highly polished brass and they used that to look at and to examine themselves when they were, when they were dressed. Remember the Egyptian women with all the makeup and all the, and all the emphasis on beauty of the Egyptian women? They've picked that culture up and they brought these out of Egypt. And so all the women's looking glasses were collected, they were donated for the construction of that that laver. So that laver was one big mirror 
a big dished out mirror. When you go to, when you go to, to in your, in your, your bathroom area to wash your hands, you've got a lavatory here and what else? A mirror because you're washing yourself and you're examining yourself. Well, that's what the brazen laver was. It was a place for self-examination using the looking glasses, material of the looking glasses, which represents self-examination and filled with water. You know what a reflecting pool is that you look into and you see your reflection. This is what this is about. So the priests go up here to wash themselves and to examine themselves to make sure they are qualified or worthy to go into the holy place. But they have a problem. When they go up and wash their hands and their feet and wash all that blood off of them, the water is contaminated with blood. Now they're trying to look in here and see that, that, uh, that, that, that polished brass to see their face, but they can't see their face because all they can see is blood, the bloody water. They're trying to look at themselves through the bloody water. Guys, what is that saying to us? That's saying that what qualifies them to go into the presence of God and to experience all that God has is not based on how they examine themselves and what they can see in themselves, but is based on the blood that stands between their flaws and their presentation of themselves. So that when God, that is pictorial of the fact that when God looks at us, he sees us through the blood, just like they're trying to see themselves through the blood. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so, so they're standing there looking, looking for their flaws and looking for the reasons that God might reject them, but they can't see the reasons that God would reject them because they're looking at the blood sacrifice that says, you're okay, you're worthy. Church, this is how God sees us. God doesn't look at me and see my flaws. He looks at me and sees the blood. Are you hearing me? And so they, so am I worthy? Don't you ever ask that question again after what I'm telling you right now. <clears throat> because when you look for the flaws in your own life, you should see the blood of Jesus because that's what God sees. You know, the Bible teaches in the book of James that when a man examines himself, if he looks into a mirror, then he gets, a, he gets this false image, he even forgets about what, who he is or what he is. But if you look into the word of God for a definition of who you are, that's how God sees you. Then you're looking into the law that makes you liberated. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that there is that the that the saints came across this one who 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 accused them day and night, the accuser. And so they had to deal with this guy. This is the devil who was accusing them and telling me, you're not worthy. You're not worthy. You did this and you did that and this happened to you and that did that and this is in your past and that's the accuser. But they overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. What does that mean? That means that instead of allowing the devil to point them to their flaws, they pointed him to the blood of the lamb. When the devil says, you did this and you did that, they said, the blood of the lamb has paid for that. I don't see myself through my flaws. I see myself through the blood of the lamb. I look into that brazen laver and I see that bloody water and that bloody water says, 
that's who you are. Walk through that door into the presence of God. You're going to be all right. So I want you to throw away three attitudes that would try to set up in your mind. Number one, God no longer heals today. Number two, God heals some but not others. And number three, I'm not worthy of God's healing power. If you'll pick up on that, if you'll recognize that, guys, you'll decide today, hey, you know what? Jesus will heal me today because he heals today. Jesus will heal me because he heals all. And Jesus will heal me because I'm worthy of healing. Stand up with me, please.